Hey there, and welcome back to War Stars of Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Jacob Graves. Hello. And Peterson Hill. Hello there. Guys, what are we bantering about today? Well, we've got a review of Wes Anderson's eccentric ensemble piece, The Royal Tenenbaums. Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with the film. And of course, we will wrap up the show as you always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, guys. What's going on, Chris? Hey, Chris. So we are now at Wes Anderson's third film. And I think the film where he kind of really begins to totally come into his own. Rushmore, he definitely uh, showed a lot of that promise of who kind of we think of Wes Anderson as. But for me, this is the one where he, he really, like, lets it all out. I'm curious, before coming into the review this time, rewatching it, where did you guys stand with the Royal Tenenbaums? So coming into it, this is one that I remember fondly. I've only seen it a couple of times. I think my family rented it on like VHS when it came out or, or DVD, whatever it was at the time. And they hated it. I think I fell asleep during it. I, I just it, like I wasn't old enough to appreciate it at the time. Sure. But but I rewatched it once or twice before this. And, and coming into this, it set... Kind of middle tier as far as Wes Anderson films go, but but very clearly uh, with that uh, Andersonian or whatever you want to call it uh, style in it, and very clearly kind of the first entry into uh, his, his his what we think of him as now. Yeah, so I saw it original theatrical release uh, right when it came out. You son of a probably, bitch! Probably first or second weekend, and I remember walking out and saying, "I like this, but I don't really know if I can verbalize why." Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was 15 and I remember wa- enjoying it, but I just never really could put my finger on why. And then I would watch it every couple of years. And this certainly sits, uh, close to the top tier of Anderson films for me. It is not my favorite. It was for a long time. And with this rewatch, I really do really, really love this movie. I think for me, it's always been a movie I've really enjoyed. And I think the last couple of years, especially as I've gotten a little bit older, I've really understood why i love it and really the thing that makes me uh latch on to it but chris what about you for me this is the one that i've always sort of pointed to as my favorite it was i think the first one that i saw um i'm pretty sure saw this first and then saw it rushmore well i remember the first time i ever saw it was like just seeing the suicide scene and like just flipping through channels and it was on hbo or stars or whatever at a friend's house and just like it's it caught me because it was just visually arresting and also like I, you know there's luke wilson what's he doing oh god what's going on and like my friend comes up from downstairs making a sandwich and he's like oh royal tenenbaums funny movie I'm like oh no <laughs> looks like a real laugh riot yeah it, it, exactly and then you know like went on from there and then didn't see it again for you know a year or so. And then, fi- but when I finally came to it, it was sort of this thing where it was like, kind of like you, Peterson, like this intangible, like, I don't know what I love about it, but it also, it had this feeling of like 
it just feels right to me. And it's probably, you know, it's, it's probably in all the very meticulous, you know, set decoration and composition and all the things that Wes Anderson's become known for, um, now it, and it's, so it's, it's always sort of set at the top of the mantle for me, but you know, in the past few years, I've toyed on and off with the idea of, well, is this my favorite? Like, and I'm, I'm the type who doesn't really like, I have no problem with saying something's my favorite and also admitting that maybe it's not the best of a director's work, you know, I hear you Coltrane. Um, <laughs> like, well, like I would say silence might be Martin Scorsese's best film, but is it my favorite Scorsese film? No, there are other films that speak directly to me more. Um, and, and so that's where I've kind of been Don't throw that bomb out right now. <laughs> we can, we, we will discuss that at some time down the road somewhere. Uh, but point being is I'm fine with the contradiction, but coming into this rewatch for me, like the big thing was, okay, we, we have to wrestle with this once again, like heavy as the crown does Royal Tenenbaum still hold up as my favorite. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to get into discussing what I discovered. How recent was your previous watch? Probably a couple of years. I'd have to check Letterboxd if it was logged there. I know for sure the, the last one that I know, like definitely it came like the Blu-ray re-release on Criterion came out on my birthday. I don't know, probably four or five years ago, probably like Mm -hmm. five years ago. Definitely watched it then. Uh, my wife got it for me for my birthday and then I, I know I've watched it a couple times since, but I couldn't say, you know, probably within the past few years. Yeah. That's where I was on this one too. I, I hadn't seen it in a good while. It's probably been three years if I had to guess since I've seen it. Uh, but, but there were a lot of things I had forgotten and a lot of things, it didn't strike me as new, new, but struck me as, as I forgot the characters interacted this way sort of thing. Well, I remember the images from this movie so, so, so uh-huh. well. Exactly. And I think... Some of the smaller, really tender moments within it, not that I lose them, but when I see them again, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I remember this, this is why I like this movie so mm-hmm. much, this moment. And it's not, I mean, I love the images, but you know, we'll get into that. Yeah. With that in mind, let's, uh, let's just dive into our full-blown review, guys. I've missed the hell out of you, my darlings. Well, you know that though, don't you? I hear you're dying. So they tell me. I'm sorry. Well, I've had a good run. You don't look so sick, Dad. Thank you. What have you got? I got a pretty bad case of cancer. How long are you going to last? Not long. A month? A year? About six weeks. Let me get to the point. The three of you and your mother are all I've got, and I love you more than anything. (laughs) Chaz, let me finish here. I've got six weeks to set things right with you, and I aim to do it. Will you give me a chance? No. Do you speak for everyone? I speak for myself. Well, you've made your views known. I'll let somebody else do some of the talking now. What do you propose to do? I can't say, really. Uh, make up for lost time, I suppose. First thing I want to do is take you out to see your grandmother at some point. I haven't been out there since I was six. I haven't been out there at all. I was never invited. Well, she wasn't your real grandmother, and I never knew 
how much interest you had, uh, sweetie. Anyway, you're invited now. Thanks. You know, Rachel's buried out there, too. Who? My wife. Oh, that's right, isn't it? Well, we'll have to swing by her grave, too. Um, I'll be right back. Chas? Chas? Can I see my grandsons? All right, guys, we, we've all seen The Royal Tenenbaums numerous times, but for the uninitiated, a quick, brief sort of synopsis. Uh, it's basically takes place in this, I don't know if you call it alternate world. It's, it's a Wes Anderson world. It's not quite New York. It's not quite any time frame. Um, but it's this family of geniuses, perhaps former geniuses, specifically not geniuses. Their <laughs> uh, their next door neighbor, who is specifically not a genius. Um, at least they were they were considered geniuses in their youth. These uh, two brothers and a sister, the Tenenbaum children, um, and now we're twenty years after sort of their prime as these prodigy wonderkin. Um, who, you know, in, in sports and playwriting and accounting and all of these things. And now they've kind of, they're kind of in this bit of arrested development and have been more or less ever since their parents split up when they were kids. And so now we find ourselves 20 ish years later and their father decides that he wants to try to get back with their mother because, well, she might be trying to marry someone else. And they all find themselves under the same roof for the first time in a very long time. And uh, hilarity ensues and such. That's really about, I mean, as Wes Anderson movies go, that's about as much plot as there really is, and maybe even more than is actually here. Uh, How did you guys feel about the structure of this movie this time around? To me, the first... 30 minutes I was watching and I was enjoying it, but for some reason it just wasn't connecting in mm-hmm. this kind of emotional way. And I, I was loving kind of what was on display, but until a certain moment, it didn't really like congeal for me. And it wasn't a sliding as film. Cause I think that first third really sets up what comes next. But I think the thing that really changes the structure for me is it's like three different chapters. It's the Royal reintroduces himself. Royal then gets outed as being a fake. And then it's the the wedding at the very end. Yeah. Um, it's like these three distinct chapters. And that first third to me kind of sets things up, but it sets them up in a way that is such a literary construct mm-hmm. that it's a little bit harder to register that first third from an emotional level, but it sets up the emotion to come for the, the second and the third act in a way that I think is really smart and really beautiful. Well, it's really like the first 10 minutes or so of this movie is basically preface. It's, it's giving you everything that you need to know about the Tenenbaum children as children so that now we can get the actual story going. And I think even like in the, the commentary um, it's, for years and years always stuck out to me. There's this line in, in the commentary where Wes Anderson's like, I don't really think you're supposed to go this long without starting the story. 
but we did. <laughs> like the way that he says it is just, it's wonderful because it's like very self-conscious, but at the same time, he's like, well, we did it. What are we going to do? There are all these little kind of quick cutaways to give us information, which is just sort of a way to try to quickly give all kinds of different background details because there's so many characters and there's so much backstory. I mean, we're still, the story still hasn't started. I don't know how far into it we are. I don't think you're really allowed to go this far without starting the story, but we did. Well, it's, it's basically the same way Goodfellas starts. Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite have maybe the propulsion of Goodfellas. And it's also very intentionally sort of that Wes Anderson dollhouse staging sort of thing uh, going on as well, where he's, he's very intent on drawing the audience to the fact that he's playing with artifice from the beginning. Yeah. And I I feel like for me, this is his most intentional um, dive into into what we think of as Wes Anderson, because to me, this one in particular is the one that everyone references as being like, this is what all Wes Anderson movies are. And even though he plays with this formula and he he goes deeper into it and takes it in different directions in his different films, this is like the most pure Wes Anderson movie. Uh, if you wanted to say anyone is kind of the, I don't want to say like the the prototypical or 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 uh, or something like that, but this is the most distilled version of the the Wes Anderson, like you said, dollhouse effect. Do you think that's because it's his most accessible? Like you watch this movie, I think everyone can kind of register with it on a certain level, and something like uh, you know Moonrise Kingdom is a little bit more kind of closed off in a way, not in a bad way, but. Just it's a little bit more closed off in certain ways. Do you think that's partly why? I would argue that Moonrise Kingdom is actually more accessible than I would than too. This is like I think I think the thing is is that this is where he finally comes to full blown Wes Anderson as far as he's he's fully developed into that. He's gone through the chrysalis. He is the butterfly of Wes mm-hmm. Anderson here. And so I think people are constantly pointing back to this anytime they see anything in another movie of his that feels in yes. any way like this. It's they always throw the shade and say, oh, well, he already did it. And they point back to uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, even though, you know, they say, oh, he's always talking about about family issues or daddy issues or and it's they're always pointing back to this specifically. This is the playbook that he then uses to do other things is what I think other people think this is, or they think these same things come up over and over when really I think uh, kind of the, almost the exact opposite. I think this is the most detached of a lot of his films. Just the characters are very flat, the character and not like a criticism, just the way it's portrayed. Stylistically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, a lot of the other ones have, more that you can hold on to. Uh, I think um, Grand Budapest has the the relationship between the the uh, Gustav H. And Agatha. Yeah, is there Agatha and it, yeah, uh, exactly. And, and Moonrise Kingdom has has the the kids in it that are very accessible uh, or or something to relate to. Fantastic Mr. Fox has the father son uh, component that, that you can draw on and also just, you know, much more, uh, more kind of three dimensional performance in my mind. But this one is so, so kind of intentionally flat that it, that you are just living and breathing in the style of the film. The style is the star of it. The, the image 
is the star of this film with with not as much competing against it as in the other ones. And so I think when people think of Royal Tenenbaums, first and foremost, they're thinking of the Wes Anderson style that built, you know, each of the frames in the film. Do you think this is his most seen movie? I think it probably was until like I I think his past what three or so have been there's I, I think there's definitely been a resurgence in popular culture with mm-hmm. him not just you know not just as a you know madman sort of like everyone knows about him but not everyone's watching him but like mm-hmm. actual you know theater going and people aware of and seeing his movies since Moonrise Kingdom. I think he's kind uh, okay. of okay. Isle of Dogs too. Um, Isle of Dogs is maybe a little a little less, but certainly Moonrise Kingdom and uh, and Grand Budapest for sure. I think Isle of Dogs it still got more discussion than his films generally uh, had up until you know five years ago. I, I think Rushmore might be more seen than this one. You think? I'm, I'm, that's the two I would say if if I had to kind of put the top two. Uh, there aside from kind of his, his more, you know, modern that, you know, once it's nominated for an Academy Award, obviously people are going to seek it out just because of that. I think with this one, there's, there's so many movie stars in it. There's so many recognizable, you know, you've got Mm -hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow, you've got Gene Hackman, you've got Ben Stiller, you've got both Wilson brothers, you've got, uh, um, Danny Glover. Like it's just embarrassing how many stars he's packed into this thing well and also every one of them has a purely iconic look that's almost iconic to that actor across all their roles as well yeah like it's just like visually you've seen a picture of it or you've seen someone in a costume or you've seen an artistic uh rendition of it a painting a a postcard something of everybody in this movie from their role in this movie yeah, even down to a character like Dudley, who is not, you know, he's more or less, you know, he's he's there for comedic relief and he's there for sort of, I don't want to say set decoration, but he's, you know, a tertiary character here. Even he has this sort of mythic quality to him now in, in popular culture to a, to an extent that I feel like you know, a lot of the characters, the, a lot of the ancillary characters in the other films um, up until this point did not um, like aside from like maybe, you know, I've never seen anyone at a, you know, Wes Anderson uh, dress up event dress up as like the little kid in the Speedo from Rushmore. It's because you've never been at a Wes Anderson event with me, Chris. I guess that's true. <laughs> Dudley, Dud, Dudley's on about that level. Though. He is, clearly has dialogue, so he's mm-hmm. he's a little above that. But you know what I'm saying. Like, it's just everything is fleshed out to a T here. Well, yeah. So we've talked about kind of a place it holds in pop culture, and I think we all agree it probably holds a pretty good place. But what's y'all's actual take on the movie now after, you know, 19 years, 18 years on? I, I'm amazed that it still holds up. I'm amazed that because I've seen this movie so many times, I'm amazed that it still has things to tell me each time I watch it. Um, and I'm still every time finding something a little new or finding a new, a new perspective or a new, you know, something to, to hook me. And I think that's partially with, you know, maturing and aging. I'm, I'm seeing things from now that I'm, you know, a father seeing things from a bit of a different perspective in Royal than I had previously. And, um, 
it's still, you know, it, it's still evolving with me. And so I, I appreciate that. I will say just to, you know, let the tension out. I don't know if this is my favorite Wes Anderson film anymore. And I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, interesting enough, I think this dropped a little bit for me, this viewing as well. There's still a ton that I love. Still plenty of things throughout the entire movie that are make it worth watching, make it worth seeing, that are are, are really uh, just Wes showing off on, on how he can handle characters, how he can handle interactions and all of these things. But I, I don't know if this time maybe I was um, a little bit over... Um, kind of the visual aspect. I had seen all the different images before. It didn't have that kind of fresh new feeling from the first two, three times I watched it. And I didn't have mu- as much of an emotional connection as I did in the past. And uh, compared to a lot of his other movies and the things I, that I've seen that he's done since the last time I watched it. So things like Grand Budapest that just have more of that emotional punch to it. It made this one kind of weaker in comparison, which is kind of, kind of, bad to say because i enjoy the movie i like the movie but it just it it isn't that heavy hitter like it was in my memory for some reason it's weird because i was going into it expecting well it's probably gonna be middle of the pack anderson for me Mm -hmm. now it's kind of risen really a little bit for me um it's it's not my favorite wes anderson uh film but i do think there's so much to love here and I think he is coming into his own as a filmmaker in a way and watching him blossom here and understanding the visual aesthetic, the character aesthetic he wants to draw for the next really 20 years is I think really exciting. It's a masterwork. I mean, it really, it really is someone who completely understands the craft and is completely executing on their vision. Obviously, you know, we've touched on how this movie has affected us over the years, but I think it's, very funny, but it's also incredibly tragic and sad at the same mm-hmm. time. How does that balance work for you guys this time around? I I think it works remarkably well. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I found this time that um, I was aware of, but wasn't totally zoned in on. Like, I feel like this movie is really like the if you needed an example of. When Scorsese said, you know, that Wes Anderson is such a uh, a director that lacks cynicism, I think this is the thing that you point to just in the way that he he has such a soft touch with the balance of humor and darkness. And he's not afraid to go dark and he's not afraid to explore some really uh, difficult things, but he's never cynical about the way that he does it. And there's something really sweet in that. That's not, you know, it's not saccharine and it's not trying to be a, uh, Hallmark movie or, or something like that. It feels, it feels very real. Um, which is kind of surprising because, he's constructed this world that is so obviously not real, but I think that's sort of the magic of it is he's, he's built this, this world that sort of disarms us by saying, Oh, look how perfectly constructed everything is. And then he'll punch you with something that is really uh, emotional and dark. And it, it, I think it makes you feel it even that much stronger. The lines I think kind of sum that up is, uh, or the, the part that sums that up for me is uh, you wrote a suicide note. 
Uh, or, or I wrote a suicide note. You did? Yeah, right after I regained consciousness. Is it dark? Of course it's dark. It's a suicide it's, it's note. It's a suicide note. <laughs> Can we read it? No. <laughs> but that is like, that is pure Wes Anderson. Uh, just in, uh, it would be hard for anybody else to pull that off with the same level of emotion and comedy and writing that kind of knife edge between the two. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the dynamic. It's the dynamic between those characters. And it's also the release valve mm-hmm. of all of that pressure that you just built up. What I like is that he's able to do this. So a complaint you'll hear about movies sometimes, ah, that was just a play. You stuck some characters in the room and they read their lines and all that. And he manages to write what I feel is effectively a play. He's writing like, you know, I'm using these characters, I'm playing against them. The, they, the way the delivery is, it feels to me very play-like, but mm-hmm. by also being a pure master of the cinematic art form, from the way everything is meticulously arranged, it is just such a unique, unique thing. And it, I think it's those two things put together and mixed with his ability to write really good dialogue. I know people criticize him for it, but I think all the dialogue's great here. Uh, and it, it, it's this perfect storm of letting you get to spaces that you aren't able to get to with other other films. I think this has my probably my favorite Wes Anderson piece of dialogue. Mm-hmm. It is right after Royal's been kicked out of the house, and mm. he says, "I'm not dying anymore, Richie." And he goes, "You were never dying, Dad." He goes, "Yeah, but I'm going to live." <laughs> and yes, I mean it's it's a weirdly absurd line, but also like it. 100% triggers all these things that Anderson's so obsessed with in this film specifically. I mean, the thing about this movie is that, no, he does not die, and the cancer was a lie, but Royal does die in the end. Like, he is showing you that life is fleeting. He's making this really earnest attempt to uh, tell these people's lives and show their lives and that their decisions matter amongst themselves as a family unit. But also he is showing that Royal could have had a really different life. He made a really couple bad decisions in his life. And because of that, he shut out his family. Um, and then whether you, you know, and whether you believe in like an afterlife or whether you don't believe in afterlife, you know, there's no way to know what's next. And I think that's something that Anderson's kind of playing with here. Cause the only moment that really matters and, kind of this Anderson film is the exact moment that we're currently in the one you're living in right now, because, and we'll heart, heart back to a PTA quote here is that, you know, we may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. Right. And that's kind of what Anderson's getting at here is that, you know, essentially Gene Hackman's Royal comes on the scene is like, guys, you know, I, I messed up, but I, I've got six weeks to live. I want to be here for you. And I want to have this, really meaningful exchange for the last six weeks of his life. Now he's lying in that exchange, but the attempt is earnest, right? He's trying to make this connection that he hasn't had before. And I think that's where the movie really kind of becomes something that it isn't in the first 30 minutes. It's this really beautiful exploration of the lives we lead and who we are at every turn. One of the criticisms of Wes Anderson that really, really ticks me off is when people say that he his characters are flat or his characters are one dimensional. That is the most like untrue thing to me. The performances are flat on purpose or understated, as I would probably say it. But look understated, at all the yeah. all the care and love that goes into in the, the lines and the moments that he gives his characters. My favorite one in this one uh, is when Royal says, I think the... The last six days have been probably the, the best six days of my life. 
And then the narrator yeah. comes in after and says, immediately after saying this, he realized that it was true. Yeah. And that is such a, a understanding of that character of he lied. He was manipulating, but then he realized what he said was actually true. Like he didn't realize it until after he said it. It's such a deep understanding of that character. Gene Hackman's face. Yeah. When he essentially realizes it is so good. Like it is, it, it really does break your heart. And that's, you know, this movie has really incredibly funny moments. Like, you know, the moment where Gene Hackman is in the closet with Pagoda, <laughs> smoking a cigarette, drinking a martini and eating a cheeseburger amongst all these board games. And it's absurd. It's crazy. And he's got that, <laughs> you yeah. know, his crazy the, that, laugh. The button on that scene. <laughs> there you are, you son of a bitch. <laughs> when he sees the, uh, the, the Havelina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's what I think Anderson's so good at is that he creates these characters that don't have as much self-actualization and self-realization as they think they do. Like all of them think they know themselves a little bit. Like Royal thinks he knows the person he is, but he doesn't. Like he doesn't understand like because he is. He is charming. Like there's that great moment where him and Angelica Houston are strolling down <laughs> the path and she's like, you know, all these little, all these little aphorisms of yours. And he's like, what do you mean? And she's like, all these little sayings you have. And he's like, oh, you're true blue, Ethel. Yeah. You're true blue. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't realize he's saying what is this crazy thing, but he does. Like he, he says it and he's charming and he's funny. And that's something he gives to his children, but they don't know how to actualize it uh, in the same way that he does. I think about this movie and the, the sort of the basic bones of it. And I think especially like at this time, could you imagine Noah Baumbach making this story in 2001? Like Royal would have been a total son of a bitch. Like he would have been a son of a bitch and an asshole. He would have, a- yeah, he would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have been just the most caustic sort of character. And that's the thing that I find so fascinating is the way Royal starts out, you know, Royal is, it starts out with him finding out, oh, my wife's trying to marry a guy. Okay, I'm going to con them into getting back into my life so that I can win my wife back, who I haven't really cared about, uh, you know, for the past couple decades. But now that someone else is interested in her, maybe I'll, I'll try to get back with her. And then he sort of, in trying to con them, he actually like realizes what he couldn't convince himself of without, you know, being involved with his family. And it's sort of this thing that he had he cons himself. Yeah, he had, exactly. He had, he, well, he had conned himself into thinking like, well, I don't need them. And then as soon as he's back with them, he realizes it's the only thing that he needs. It's, and, and it's the, you know, it's the type of thing where he really is, you know, he's a father in the best sense of the term and that like, he totally makes mistakes, but he's also not just going to ride on like, well, I'm a, I'm a bad guy. And so I'm, you know, I'm going to ride the line of being a bad, like he tries, he legitimately tries in the end to make it up to everyone. And he also realizes, especially with Chaz, that like, okay, well, I've done some wrong and I don't know how to make amends for that. And that's, you know, it's, it's, this movie is sweet in a way that you really don't expect as it begins to roll. 
Like you don't expect what happens, how it, how it kind of all comes to bloom in the third act to, um, to happen. It's sort of a magic trick. Well, I think the thing that Anderson really latches on to, especially with the Chaz and Royal relationship is that Royal, he essentially, I don't think he really knows that Chaz lost his wife in the beginning. Like when he says, Oh yeah, you know, well, we got to swing by and see her too. Yeah. Uh, when they're going to see his mother, um, which is an insane kind of, it's a crazy line. I don't think he realizes like, Oh, he lost his wife. And in the end, he realizes the best thing he can do is just be there for his son. It's not asserting himself and being the charming over the top character that he is. It's just being there. It's getting him the dog. It's being there for him to talk to and listen. Well, and he has that with all three of the the children too. Like I think Chaz is the most pronounced because he's the one who's the most sort of against Royal. He's certainly against him being in the house, but with Margot, she's always felt like just sort of, she's felt like, well, this is my adopted daughter, Margot Tenenbaum. Like, and he didn't mean it as a slight, but of course, as a child, she's going to take it that way. He didn't realize the impact he was having on her with Richie. Like he thought he was giving him all the love and attention in the world, but he was also putting all the pressure on him. He didn't realize it. And it's only here that, you know, they're able to have those discussions and, and realize, like, I love, I love the beautiful moment when they're at the uh, ice cream shop. I'd like to order some ice cream for my daughter. What would you like, Marco? Nothing. I told you I have to go in five minutes. I'll have a butterscotch sundae, I guess. Your brother's all torn up inside. Well, so am I, but I'm not going to discuss it with you. Well, can't somebody be a shit their whole life and try to repair the damage? I, I mean, I think people want to hear that. Do they? Hmm. You probably don't even know my middle name. That's a trick question. You don't have one. Helen. That was my mother's name. I know it was. I think that moment is so, like, it's so touching and it's so real, but it's also the type of thing that um, I feel like all of us would, if we were in Royal's position, we all find ourselves in that position from time to time we would want to be able to swallow that pill of being realizing that we're wrong. Um, but I don't know if all of us would like, it's easier to do what he's been doing for years and years in just ignoring it. But he finally like owns up to, uh, okay, I've, I need to make amends and it's so refreshing and so beautiful. In that moment where him and Richie are at, the uh, cemetery and they're walking through mm -hmm. and he's like, what the hell happened out there? Bomber I had a lot of money riding on that <laughs> and a lot personally riding on that. And it's like, he just doesn't realize that his son had a complete mental break. Yeah. And he just, it's beyond him. He doesn't understand what he's capable of at that point. And then in the whole movie is really about him understanding that. 
Um, and I think that's, it's a really beautiful arc. And I think for me, I, I love Gene Hackman and this is easily in my top couple of Gene Hackman performances. He is just incredible in this film. He's incredible in every film. That, that's so hard for me to even rank his top ones. But what I like about what I like about this film is that he is sort of scummy to all his kids. He has very different relationships with each one of them. They all grow and develop, and the camera and the director and the script, everything manages to stay distant from it and let you observe what's happening without really taking a side to condemn him, without taking a side to support him. I think this exact this is the only way you can handle this for me to really, really enjoy this is just like completely take it hands off and let you watch it unfold with a little bit of distance. Because if the camera were more involved, you would, you would either grow to hate him or try to be too sympathetic toward like, there's too many ways this could go wrong. And this is the perfect, perfect way to handle this story in my mind. Yeah. And I've got to ask here, cause there's a couple moments where Royal makes some, we'll say, off off color remarks um yeah and they're these small little asides but i think they do kind of trigger one of two things either he is like an actual racist you're talking about what he says to to henry henry sherman well he calls him coltrane but he also says when he's <laughs> asks um when he asks richie's like uh that big old grizzly bear or whatever he calls him like um he calls him a grizzly bear uh he calls him a black buck at some point. Like yeah. it, these are these are very racially you know, charged. Of, yeah, yeah. I I think at least with the Coltrane comment, my my reading, especially this time around, and I was like, I think probably more probably more sensitive to it here than I I ever have been before. Um, just in I don't know aging and being trying to be more you know, socially aware, but, um, I, I read it particularly the Coltrane moment as not a like example of his personal, uh, feelings towards Henry Sherman, but actually he's, if you, if you really pay attention to the way that scene plays out, Royal is trying, his goal is get under Sherman's skin so that, Henry will make a big fuss and then Ethel will come in and see Henry kind of being mean to, to Royal. The sick because, dying old man. Yeah. Because there's been like Royal has gotten the report that maybe she's coming around on him a little bit. And so I think he, in his mind, it's like, okay, I've got to do something to trigger him. I'll start, I'll start by just sort of being agitating and then I'm going to hit him with, the weirdest sort of, you know, it's jive. Yeah, I jive all day. Coltrane, did you just call me Coltrane? No, no. It's like, and it's a, it's the type of thing where if he truly was just a straight up capital R racist, like that's not the way he would have, he would have approached it. And you he, think he was trying to gaslight him into claiming he was racist? Yeah, more. I mean, I don't yeah. even think it was trying to go that far. I think it was just. I think he was trying, he was to, trying to. Yeah, get, he's trying to get a rise out of him. Yeah, yeah. he's, yeah. Trying, to say, he's okay. trying to get under his skin, trying to get a rise out of him. The yeah. other, you know, calling him big grizzly bear, big black buck. I think that you kind of do see a little more of him getting a little raw, but um, at the same time, it's Royal always has. You know, like I think the fact that he's in the intro 
described as a prominent litigator in the 80s. Like what he does is he uses words to try to manipulate people. And so he's he's a little raw in those moments, but he's also trying to like get his kids on his side as well. And I love when uh, when he asks Richie, uh, Richie's like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, Henry Sherman, you think he's worth a damn? And Richie just flat out says, well, yeah, I do. Or, so, you know, to that, yeah. like, um, and just totally, you know, shuts him down. And then Royal realizes, okay, well, that line of questioning isn't working. So I'll go about it a different way. You know, he well, also realizes he has competition too. Yeah. Yeah. Like actual competition in a way that he probably didn't before. And that's, I think, is Royal is not used to having competition because the things that he has are his charm, his wit. He is very smart, but also he's kind of let those things fall by the wayside a little bit. So he went from being kind of, was probably a little bit of a catch to being certainly not a catch anymore who can't pay for a massage and needs to borrow a quarter from the bellhop to be able to call his family. Yeah. Yeah, but no, he clearly knows how people work. He knows the levers to pull on people. He knows what people care about in order to play them off of each other, but has no like relation to the underlying person at all. Like he does not care about people while fully understanding the relationship between them. And I think that's what you see a lot about Royal. He doesn't care about people, but he cares about or but he's he's deeply skilled in manipulating them. But I think there's a tragedy in like he realizes too late that Mm -hmm. he does care about them he didn't you know he he kind of had skated by on his charm for so long that he he just never kind of dipped a toe in that but then as soon as he actually spends time with his family like he's he's got the you know, he's got the bug and he can't get rid of it. And so that's, you know, he might be one of the most bittersweet characters ultimately Mm -hmm. uh, in this because he can't, you know, he can't totally make amends. He can only, life is fleeting and he can only do what he can do until he passes. Yeah. And I think this movie is all about real realizing that, you know, his life will come to an end one day. It's sooner than he thought. Um, but it is something that he has to reckon with in a way that he didn't before. Um, we've talked a lot about Royal and how much we love, you know, cause I think he is such a beautifully drawn character, but what about the siblings? What about the three siblings? I've, I've always been pretty fond of Richie. Um, mm-hmm. and, and for a very long time fond of Luke as my favorite Wilson brother because of Richie in this movie. Um, and I don't, I really like, I don't think Luke has ever given a performance better than this. Uh, no, it's so. this about, yeah, maybe because it was a character that was written specifically for him. And it just like, it utilizes him in such an interesting dynamic way where he's sad. You know, it's, it's sort of like Anthony in bottle rocket, but way more fleshed out and way more complicated. Um, and then I think, you know, I think I, I've said before, Paltrow is not an actress who I love, but I really love her in this. Yeah, I think this is her best her best take. And then Ben Stiller is another one of those guys who I think sometimes he's better, you know, behind the camera than he is in front mm-hmm. of the camera at times, particularly with some of his comedies just a little broad for me. But he is just 
so absolutely perfect for pulling off this this character who has you know he he has a lot of underlying anger um a lot of stuff just you know it's just constantly boiling up and he doesn't quite let it go but he's also always on the edge um maybe you know kind of like the Adam Sandler's Barry Egan in in Punch Drunk Love which is coming up next like rides that that same line yeah i think the kids are great i mean i think i think Owen is he like hash is great i think the entire ensemble is really fantastic that Danny Glover is so good that blue suit he's wearing he's a sharp dressed man you know i it reminded me i miss Danny Glover like i miss seeing him on screen because uh, it's been a minute since he's been in something. Um, yeah, I, you know, to me, all the kids are so well drawn. Um, all of them have these really beautiful arcs too. And I think the movie, it, it flirts with going to some really strange kind of very off the wall places with Richie and Margot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't go there, which I'm glad because I think that's, it'd be a little bit more than this movie is really willing to chew on then uh but it gets close to when to go there well and i think that really we haven't talked i think at all about influences yet i think that's definitely one of the and this is the film that is packed the gills with with influence i think that's also a reason why as a young budding cinephile this movie stuck out to me so much is because i would see it and then i would go see a dozen you know old films and realize Oh, there he's referencing Palin Pressburger's The Red Shoes, and there he's referencing this and that, and you know the the Margot Ritchie uh, relationship is really l'enfant terribles, the uh, which I'm sure I just totally screwed up, but the les enfants terribles. There you go. That um, uh, the Melville film, well, Melville film based on the uh, what's his name uh, Cocteau novel. Um, he's got all of these little things in here that also made for, for a budding cinephile made it really a fun sort of thing to discover later on as I, as I was going through world cinema and those sorts of things and, and seeing how not just he was referencing or making homage, but borrowing, repurposing things. Um, it's a really dense film in that in that regard. So, I mean, obviously, this movie is just chock full of references. I mean, he's just at every turn he's referencing things, and it's the same way that I think Quentin Tarantino does. He references things, and maybe it's very overt, but he certainly makes it his own. Like he's not referencing things and saying, "Oh, I'm just referencing something just to reference it." He's not. He's not J.J. Abrams, right? Um, right. So, I think it's really exciting though is to see. How he is developing here is a filmmaker that references, but also blossoms and develops it into his own type of aesthetic. Yeah. And there is, I mean, if you showed me the first frame of this movie with the book and it's being turned around and you asked, oh, well, who is it? I'd tell you 100% without even blinking, it's Wes Anderson. Right? I mean... That's the thing is it's that very geometrically aligned, uh, you know, footage, but also he is creating this world that feels like a book. I mean, I think that's the thing that, yes, this movie feels very constructed, 
and it feels very built upon having these um, very literary characters, which is why I think he can get away with having something as boxed in and as structurally sound as this, right? I mean, it feels like you're watching something so beautifully composed, like you're reading a novel in that way, and you're constructing it in your mind. Yeah, I think he's using the box as his his rules. Like that's the thing that that works is he embraces it. He's not seeing it as a limitation, but he's seeing it as the thing that allows him to elevate and to build upon those um those sort of edges and say, "Okay, I see them, you see them, but how far can we go?" with these these rules and these constraints. And I think he, he builds that for himself time and time again um, as he continues on in his career, too. Oh, Richie, this illness, this closeness to death uh, has had a profound effect on me. I feel like a, a different person. I really do. Dad, you were never dying. But I'm going to live. He's not your father. Neither are you. Okay, guys, I got to ask, and I'm sure there's, it's not going to be difficult here, but what was the funniest moment for you guys in this movie? So for me, I think the moment that is really sticks out is, it's about, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes in when they're all sitting around and we're all like, all right, we're going to go up to the cemetery. And they're like, oh, that's where uh, Rachel's buried. I'm, I'm sorry, who? And he's like, sorry, who? And as well, Chad's his wife. He goes, oh, yeah, well, we'll, we'll need to swing by and see her too. Um, <laughs> and it's the way he just so casually says it. And then in, when actually they do get to the cemetery, uh, he lays down the flowers yeah. <laughs> and they're all sitting around and somebody mentions Rachel again. He's like, oh, yeah, we've got another body buried here. And he reaches down and he gets like three or four flowers. He hands it to Chaz to go put by a gravestone. And yeah. it's just – it's a moment where he thinks he's being thoughtful. Totally unaware. So, it's so callous. It's yeah. so callous. And he doesn't realize it. But it's this great character moment for one, for him, but also for Chaz and just – how he kind of like takes it in stride a little bit that his dad's essentially saying like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like your wife, like big deal. She's dead. No, no big deal. Um, I think that's, I mean, it's a darkly comic move, but I think it's really funny. Yeah. This is a tough one for me. Cause there's so many things that are quotable that I maybe wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily say are the funniest parts. Like I love the, uh, uh, the everyone knows General Custer died at Little Bighorn, <laughs> Bighorn. What this what this presupposes? Maybe he didn't. And like, then I, that I love smile. that. Yeah, I, I love that. And there's a ton of, th- but I love every time Royal plays a card, walks it back, and then recommits a little bit. Like when he's like, "I'm dying." No, I'm not. No, I am. <laughs> or when he's like, "Hey, uh, Coltrane, did you call me Coltrane?" No, I didn't. Like, like he just like plays the edge and then walks it right back. And every time he does something like that, that that's what kills me. I know it's a very character driven thing. It's not like a particular moment, but I just love watching Gene Hackman. He's not quite chewing up scenery, but he, he's definitely putting on like uh, an acting class of, of just 
being able to to play this character who is so committed to manipulating other people but doing it in a in a in a deeply funny way it's it's one of it's one of my favorite roles of his as well well he's charming enough to convince you that royal could find himself in that like royal could exist as a character like that because gene hackman is charming enough to pull it off yeah yeah no it 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 it, it, it almost is a character that shouldn't work and it does purely because of the performance man for me i I had mine, and then Peterson, you start talking about yours, and I think about Royal's epitaph, um, died saving his family from a sinking battleship or something to that effect. Um, Or Jake, when when he he backs it up when he's talking to Ethel, and she hits him, like, she actually hits him, and you can hear Gene Hackman go like, oh, damn. And then, like, (laughs) under his breath, and then come back into character. Um, like that's a moment that I love. I do love, I do love the little bighorn moment, but for me, the thing that I have been finding myself lately, I don't know why, but every once in a while, I'll just go wildcat, wildcat, like there's when, uh, who who acts like this? Uh, I just I love how absurd like that that moment is and it's a perfect like you could almost you can envision it hap- actually happening on Charlie Rose just because of how low tech that show is um and you know he's on the the alternate universe Wes Anderson universe Charlie Rose show there's there's just something about that that's so um it's so perfectly, and it's part of it's part of Wes Anderson, and in this case, Owen Wilson as co-writer, writing moments for specific people as characters, and knowing that they can pull it off because that's you know that's a perfect Owen Wilson moment. The way that he's just you know drifting off into space and kind of quiet, and he's he looks ridiculous. He's got the fringe jacket and the big cowboy hat and just wildcat <laughs> wildcat and then just like no i'm sorry i'm gonna, I'm gonna have to leave what? it's it's absurd it's another one of those wes anderson right right moment for the right person like i i, yeah. I get it maybe i'm not supposed to laugh at this i don't know but when bill murray goes You've made a cuckold of me many times over. Like it's it's just it's the right person, the right joke, the right delivery. It's just it's just one of those moments. Yeah, we didn't we didn't even talk about Murray. But I think I already mentioned a little bit. But when it's yeah, Royal sitting in there, and this was my like close number two is sitting in the closet, and he's got a martini, a cigarette, and a cheeseburger, <laughs> yeah. and he's supposedly dying. <laughs> like. Come on, like yeah, and when Henry Sherman finally calls him out, he's like, No, 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 no. Like you're not dying of stomach cancer. Come on. That's the last time you put a knife in me. <laughs> you hear me? <laughs> Who stabbed you? He did. <laughs> <laughs> Pagoda's great in this too. I mean, it's just it's oh yeah. It's so many just minor minor characters who, who are given like good spotlight moments in this in this movie. It's it's great. Hey! What? Where have you been? Oh, we just stepped out to get some air. What's that? Holy shit. That's not... What is that? 
Oh, no, no, that's uh, dog's blood. Come here. What? You stay away from my children. Do you understand? My God, I haven't been in here for years. Hey! Are you listening to me? Yes, I am! I think you're having a nervous breakdown. I don't think you recovered from Rachel's death. I... There you are. Where does this movie fall on the Anderson anthology for you? Is it an Anderson A-list? Cream of the crop, tip of the top. Is it a deep dive? You would, you know, recommend a Wes Anderson enthusiast to check it out, but may not recommend it to everyone. Or is it among Wes's weakest whimsies? So coming into this this recording session, I, I had this at like the top of the deep dive list. And because... Not you son of a bitch. Not, not because it's not because it's bad, not because it's not not good, but because so much great stuff came after this and I feel like this does not uh, hit some of the emotional levels or kind of kind of resonate with me the way some of the later stuff does. But it's such it was such a borderline for me because I still love so much of what it, what this movie does do and just kind of being able to talk through it hearing your interpretations and and hearing the things you guys kind of brought up about it just reminded me how many things there are to like in this movie and even if we made better movies in the future movies that did more or lifted more weight for me it it doesn't mean that this doesn't have all those same things that i i liked the first couple times i watched it and so I, even though it's towards maybe the lower uh, Magnificent Am- Anderson, that's where I have to rank it. It's still a, it's still a, a great movie. It's still something that you absolutely should watch. I don't see how you could be a Wes Anderson fan without having seen this one or without seeing this one. So it's an, it's an Anderson eight list. I mean, I think undoubtedly this is Anderson eight list. Like I think you, if you want to know anything about this filmmaker, you've got to go here. I mean, when, when people parody him, this is where they parody. Um, for good reason, because this is so perfectly staged and all the little dollhouse techniques that he's so good at. But what I think is makes it the Anderson A-list is that within that construct, he finds this really beautiful, emotional, and really, you know, essentially heartwarming story. I mean, he has no cynicism here, and he has this really effective and emotionally driven story about this family. Um, so for me, I, I can't imagine putting it anywhere but an Anderson A-list. Um, you know, from here on out, he's, I think he's the filmmaker he was kind of born to be. And I really do love this movie in a lot of ways. And I love what he's doing behind the camera. I love what he's doing from a story construction. Um, there's things I like more from him in the future, but I think this is so well crafted and mm-hmm. so well acted, uh, top to bottom. Yeah. So yeah, definitely Anderson yeah. A list for me. Uh, but what about you, Chris? I I mean, basically just everything that you just said, it's, it is the, like, if you only see one Wes Anderson movie, it should probably be this one. Anderson A list oh, through and through. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's the shortest, it's the quickest way to understand Wes Anderson in aesthetic, in style, in narrative, 
approach. It's it's all here. Even if he goes on to build more on top of it later, this is the epicenter of all of it. You would say this. It it is the epicenter. I'm not arguing that. But you would say for if you were only going to watch one, watch this and not Grand Budapest. You don't think that would be. Yeah, the more kind of full exit, you know, range or or um, if you're only going to watch one, watch this. I mean, then then you say I like this or I don't. If you don't, don't watch Grand Budapest. If you do, discover Grand Budapest. That's Uh, that's, see, I'm the other way. I'm like, if you're only going to watch one, watch the true peak of everything that this style can deliver. Which I, I think, I mean, it, while this is the epitome of this style, I think it's not delivering everything that this is capable of. I disagree from a, like, if I was to be discovering Wes Anderson, I would much rather start here than start at the oh, absolute no, no. peak and work work backwards it, it, in a no, funnel. No, 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 not, definitely, not to say definitely that it's start not, here. Yeah, not, not to say that it's not rewarding, you know, in, but I think, I think you start here and then there are there are plenty of things that go beyond this, but this is this is the place where you kind of dip a toe and find out if Anderson is for you. Oh, or I, if I agree. Not. I thought you were saying if you could only watch one ever, like not like a starting point or not a test the water kind of film, but like if you only had one Wes Anderson movie that could exist on Earth, it would be this one. And and that that's, may still be your answer. That's a that different. May, that's a whole different. Yeah, uh, I thought you were scenario. saying if, if you could only watch one, not if like well, if you wanted to start off. You can easily dislike this movie. And like Grand Budapest Hotel and vice versa. I think that's yeah. an easy, yes. that's an easy thing to say. I mean, well, know. but I, I meant more like there are people who watching a Wes Anderson movie is like eating cilantro for them. There is just something in their palate that makes it taste like soap and they will never like a Wes Anderson movie. If you are that person, this movie will give you that reaction just like Grand mm-hmm. Budapest will. That's who I'm saying. Don't watch I anything else. It walk away. Chris, so when our lovely listeners are at home and they pop open a beer to watch alongside this uh, film, what are they going to what are they going to pop open? I had no idea what I was going to pair with this movie because it it felt like a lot of pressure and there was just I didn't know I didn't know where to go. I I thought about going dark because this movie goes a bit dark, maybe something dark and sweet. Um, but couldn't find the right pairing there. I landed on what feels absolutely appropriate to me. Um, it is a beer called Nature of the Beast by Yahats Brewing in Yahats, Oregon. And it is a barrel-aged Saison coming in at 7.5% ABV. And guys, I dare say this is my favorite beer I've ever tasted. Um, no shit. Wow. Saison's yeah. my, my, my stuff. I'll say that. This is a farmhouse on another level because like it's super funky and super earthy and kind of strange. And it's, it's the type of beer that there are certain people it will just put them off. Like they will, they will take a sip and you're either in the camp of like, Oh, this is, this is like nothing I've ever had before. I need more. Or, this is not for me. I'm putting it down and I'm walking away. I I don't even know exactly how how to describe it. It's there's it's so complex and it's so um, odd, but so kind of refreshing. There's almost a I dare say like umami note to it that that sort of lingers. Uh, this is a beer I had last time we were in Oregon. Um, drink it 
drink as much as I could. And I, from time to time, just find myself craving it, craving it like crazy. And unfortunately, the only way to get Yahat's beer, as far as I know, is to go to Oregon and and find it. I don't think they ship outside of uh, or distribute outside of the uh, outside of the state. And they only fairly recently started canning, I think. So not one that's easy to get your hands on, but I think definitely totally worth the uh, the little venture if you're ever out on the the uh, Pack Northwest. So check it out, Nature of the Beast by Yahats Brewing in Yahats, Oregon. Uh, take a little road trip. You will enjoy it. I just checked. It is not available in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> nope. The Royal Tenenbaums is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures or available on a feature-rich Criterion Collection Blu-ray disc. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around, folks. Really Red Recommendations are coming up next. We took a flight to the Pacific Northwest. I've had a long and to go there. Deep in my chest, like a dream. Left Portland in the morning, headed for the coast. Feels like middle of nowhere. Winding down this road And then I see This can't be real Never seen a green and green than that The sea salt air I'm breathing brings life back together We're alive and free Holding hands on the beach and I remember what it is to be So green It was so green Take a lighthouse too We saw the octopus tree Feels like some Wes Anderson movie scene all right boys really red recommendation time once again uh jake how about you uh tell us what you got first yeah i don't it, it doesn't really have any relationship to to the film but it is something i watched recently and i thought was pretty good uh, it's called The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Have you guys seen this? It's a it's a documentary on uh, uh, Theranos, I think is how it's said. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, you haven't seen it? No. no. There was this. What was the other uh, Theranos documentary? Wasn't there another one, too? I don't know. This is the one that was on HBO. And uh, it, this, it, this one, it's the Alex Gibney one. So uh, he probably has... seventh film this year. He, he probably has two Theranos documentaries out there right now. <laughs> I think they're actually making two different Theranos movies, or they're making a Theranos Hulu show and a and a uh, with with Kate McKinnon and a movie with Jennifer Lawrence or something like that. I, I I think if you if you have a really compelling story that has a blonde woman in it, we're gonna make TV shows and movies about well, it. Jennifer just, Lawrence, if you're listening, uh, happy marriage. 
I hope she's listening. <laughs> so the inventor. The inventor. Yes, it's it's about um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who is uh, the creator of this company called uh, Theranos, which claims that just with a a finger prick, they can take a, a drop of your blood and run two hundred tests on that on on your blood. So two hundred kind of medical tests on it uh, in this box that can that can do it all. And what you see is that really this is the fire festival of companies and nothing is is actually happening there. And somehow it becomes worth nine billion dollars. And uh, it's it's a really, really compelling uh, story. And it makes you kind of wonder what if you invest money, like what what are you actually investing in and how much can fraud actually actually happen in uh, in these kind of like fast growing companies? I thought it was really great. Again, no relation to what we watched. I just think if you like documentaries or if you if you like just kind of keeping up with these sorts of things, it was a it was a really it was a really good story and it was a is a really good documentary. I can't believe neither of you guys have seen this. No, I'm I'm interested in seeing uh something about Theranos because I'd like to know a little bit more about it. I know like the broad strokes of it. And uh does the documentary touch on the fact that like she's she kind of really actually believes this, doesn't she? Like she's yeah fought for like even though it's like scientifically inaccurate like she actually thinks she's correct right well I I and that's what makes it such an interesting thing it it's not about like she's this evil person uh, it 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 paints her as somebody who wants this to be true so badly that um and and she really does want to help society and she does want this dream to come true that kind of the things they did along the way were just to the justification to get to the point where this really could happen. And uh, it's not, I mean, it's obviously painting her in a negative light, but not as negative as you would think. Like she does really want this dream to come true. And it doesn't seem like it's just for, you know, financial reasons, but, but because this is like something that she truly believes in, or at least that that's how, uh, that's how I took it, but you should definitely watch it and, and kind of form your own opinion on that as well. Yeah. This sounds fascinating. Yeah. So you can, you can find this movie, uh, in the back of the seat in front of you on a United airlines flight, which is how I watched it. Or apparently you can find it streaming on HBO as well. <laughs> All right, Peterson, what do you got? So again, this is absolutely not in line with what we just watched. Uh, so I kind of, Thinking about making my year, uh, decade in list for uh, this decade, and I was going back through, and I'm like, well, you know, The Great Gatsby, that could, that, that's sort of on the bubble of like a movie I really loved, but. That's what the guy make- in front of me was watching on the flight, no joke. Really? Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It's great. It actually that distracted me smile. through the, it's such a visual movie, it distracted me through through the first half hour of The Inventor. <laughs> I, I swear. Sorry. Keep yeah. Going. <laughs> no. Yeah. But so I, I, I do. I love the great Gatsby. It won't make my top 10 or even top 20 of this last decade, but it got me thinking, Oh, you know what? I kind I remember watching Australia, the Baz Luhrmann, uh, 2008 film with, uh, Nicole Kidman, Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman's torso. Um, <laughs> and then I remember watching, but I don't remember anything about it. So I, Saw it on Amazon Prime, and I was like, you know what? Let's let's just give this a roll. And I went in with almost no expectations, and I kind of came out thinking, like, this is a really good, old-fashioned, essentially Western, like, adventure film, also a little bit of a romance. It's one of those movies that, you know, 
I think everyone went in expecting this big grand spectacle, which it is, but they're expecting more like meat on the bone. It doesn't have much meat on the bone. It's a fun movie with Hugh, Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman. I think both of them are really, really good. Um, I think the movie looks pretty stunning. You know, Baz Luhrmann's one of those directors. You're either going to love the way his movies look or you're going to hate it. And they sometimes take a minute to like get into the rhythm of the visual aesthetic. This one doesn't. I, I actually, it really pulls you in from the beginning. Um, I'm not saying this is like, you know, like Citizen Kane, but it's, it's a really pretty effective old fashioned adventure film, which I'm kind of a, I'm a little bit of a, it's a dupe for it. I always uh, love an old fashioned kind of throwback film. Um, so this was, that was fun for a lot of reasons. And it's great seeing like Nicole Kidman having this kind of role, Hugh Jackman as well. Um, and so, yeah. And then, a, you know, a year or two before Ben Mendelsohn really breaks, he's here. So it's great seeing him as well. Um, and that's, so that's 2008's Australia. I guess I'm the only one with a recommendation even lightly uh, related this time, which kind of surprised me. Jake, normally you're uh, you're looking for all the angles. Uh, but The best I could come up with, by the way, is that she was uh, not a genius. That Elizabeth Holmes was not a, not a genius. <laughs> she she <laughs> Explicitly could be, not a genius. Um, <laughs> but the the movie that I, I'm going to recommend today, uh, it's one that I just happened to, to catch on Criterion Channel. I think by the time this episode goes up, it'll probably be gone from there. But it is Daddy Longlegs, the sophomore effort from the Safdie brothers. Came out in 2009. Um, executive produced by Casey Neistat. Uh, if you know who he is, the video creator, YouTuber guy, um, that kind of surprised me, but it's a story about this father who has two weeks a year with his, with his sons. Um, he has, he's two little boys. He gets to see them two weeks a year. They stay with him and it's just sort of slice of life of them for this span of time over, um, over one of these visits. And it's really interesting and touching like his. So the mother is very, she's got everything together and very planned out. And he's just fun, dad, pure chaos. But the thing that I found really fascinating and heartwarming about it is it's not just sort of like he's playing the archetypal, like, Oh, I'm going to be fun. Dad. Like he actually really truly cares about these kids. Even if he is a little unorthodox in the way that he's, um, choosing to be the authority figure in very light air quotes, uh, with them. It's really, I mean, definitely has, if you're familiar with the Safties, it definitely has their, uh, aesthetics that you find in, in their other films, but a little bit softer than at least this, the other stuff that I've seen from them. Um, and really surprised me. Like I, I figured I'll put this on, like, it'll be as much homework as anything to kind of see where they came from. But I really loved it. Uh, really good stuff. Um, could be on criterion channel right now, but I, I think it'll be gone by the time this episode goes goes up look for it you can definitely rent it at all the usual places uh that's daddy long legs check it out and that's a wrap for another episode of war starts at midnight 
Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the works of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're discussing PTA's 90-minute romantic comedy of sorts, Punch Drunk Love. You can find us online at warstartmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at warstartmidnight.com or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Or you can just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at WSAMPod. I'm at JakeRG23. And I'm at Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Ben Rector for the featured music on this week's show. Find out more at benrectormusic.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Did you just say you're on mescaline? Goddamn. That's the last time you put a knife in me. You hear me? This isn't cilantro. This is this is tofu, by the way. It's it's angular, it's square, it's symmetrical. It almost feels like it shouldn't exist in the real world, and some people just are never going to eat it. It's like foie gras. It soaks up all the deliciousness. I wouldn't know I don't eat tofu. tofu. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, come on. This is a square cheeseburger. I mean, come on. This is a cheeseburger because... No, foie gras is probably better. This this is way... All of his movies are way classier than a square cheeseburger. (laughs) That's that's true. This is probably closer to foie gras. This is a a square Japanese watermelon. That's what this is. (laughs) 